Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chancellor Surveyor, author, and property investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. Now, if you've listened to last week's episode, you'll know it was our 100th episode. And to celebrate the fact we got to such a prestigious milestone, an awesome milestone, 100 episodes, we had a Q&A and you very kindly sent loads of questions in via the Facebook group. And I started answering them last week. If you haven't heard that episode, by the way, you probably want to go back and listen to that because this episode is going to be a follow-on. Because in this episode, the 101st episode of the Progressive Property Podcast, I'm going to be answering more of your questions. So without any further ado, let's crack on with it. Gabriella, Gabriella Defoe, here is your question. Great question, by the way. What questions should you ask a management company? So Gabriella, I'm assuming that you mean if you have a property to rent and you want them potentially to look after your property for you, how do you vet them to make sure that they're going to look after the property properly? Well, one thing which I would be looking for if I was looking for a management company, is to see how they structure their business, because I think that there's pros and cons, as there always are, upsides and downsides, of having a company which is a specialist management company which doesn't have a lettings arm, or a specialist lettings company that doesn't have a management arm, and then the other combination could be a company that does both lettings and management. And in my experience, I would say that I feel more comfortable with firms that do lettings and management. But it all depends. It's horses for courses. It depends what you're trying to achieve. The great thing about having a firm or a business that does lettings and management, I think, is that they give you more flexibility so that if a tenant goes, you don't have to then go somewhere else to in order to get the property re remarketed and rented out. And it can all be done in-house as one seamless operation rather than having to have two businesses try and communicate with each other when they may not wish to do so. So the first thing I'd be checking is to find out how they're structured. Are they lettings only? Are they management only? Or do they do both? Next thing I'd want to know is, are they a big corporate chain or are they a local agent? Because again, in my experience, and it's all horses for courses, really, because a lot of the answer, to be honest, is going to come down to, Gabriella, are you thinking about properties in London or are you thinking about properties out of London? because what you're looking for could well be very different depending upon the type of property that you're letting out. It could also come down to the type of tenant that you're dealing with as well, of course, which we'll think about in a moment. But what I'd be thinking about next is, are they a big corporate or are they a small local? Because by and large, and again, it's not a hard and fast rule, but in my experience, a small local firm is probably going to give you a slightly better service, particularly if you've got the proprietor who owns the business, they're either there running it or they're floating around and they want to make sure that everything happens as it should and it can be often easier to resolve any problems if you can actually go and talk to the owner of the business as opposed to any queries that you have been pushed upstairs to head office. So that would be something which I might be checking for. The next thing I'd want to ask them is things like how often do they inspect the properties? What does a property inspection actually mean to them and what are they checking? I'd want to know if they're going to be letting my properties out for me, what checks they do on the tenant. One thing which can be a great thing to do 
is to make sure that your managing agent stroke letting agent does a home visit with a prospective tenant if they can. Because if you can actually go and see how the tenant is living at the moment before they move into your property, you get a much better idea of whether they're going to be a good tenant. So I'd definitely be asking them whether they do home visits. Now, of course, it may be that if you've got somebody ringing up looking to rent a property and they already, they live currently 500 miles away, you're not going to be able to do that. So I'd ask them what's their view on tenants coming from a distance. Some, te some agents would accept them, some won't. Again, you've got to think about which, which particular property strategy it is that you're undertaking. If you're doing HMOs, you're going to want a completely different type of an agent than if you were doing buy-to-lets. And they need to understand HMOs. And I'd be sitting down and talking to them and saying, you know, tell me everything you know about HMOs. What do you understand about the law? What do you think about the new licensing arrangements? What happens when a room becomes vacant? How do you market it? If you're doing student lettings, you'll have a different type of agent again. So you need to take all of these things into account when you're talking to your agent. Then a crucial question which I suspect many of us don't even want to ask, but we need to know, is what is your procedure if a tenant goes into arrears or defaults on their rent? What would you expect to happen and how much would it cost? I say that because it will happen if you're in property long enough and you own enough properties. It's just part of doing business. It will happen that one day you'll have a tenant who doesn't pay their rent. And agents tend to deal with these things in different ways. One of the things which I love about my managing agent up in Newcastle, for example, is that he's very proactive. I use a one-man band. He's a local proprietor. He's not part of a big corporate chain. And if the tenant doesn't pay rent, he'll go and knock on the door. Now, I'm not suggesting that he's doing anything that he shouldn't, but he's literally just there to ask the question and say, is everything okay? And in the old days, when we used to have housing benefit and housing benefit was dealt with at a local office, it would turn out quite often that for some technicality, their claim had fallen out of the system. And so he'd put them in the car and he'd drive them down to the housing benefit office and he would help them to fill in the form and he'd get their claim back onto the system. A little more tricky to do that nowadays with universal credit, but the same kind of principles apply. He was interested enough to go and find out why the rent wasn't being paid. My experience with the bigger firms, though, is that they don't do that. And what they tend to do is that if the rent doesn't come in, they might leave it for a week or two. During that week or two, the tenant's becoming even more and more in arrears, and then they'll write a letter. And they'll write a letter along the lines of, you know, if your rent isn't brought up to date, then we'll have to take processes to make sure that you do bring it up to date. And then nothing happens. And then a few weeks later, they'll send another letter. And on the face of it, that all seems reasonable, but not being proactive like that means that problems compound. I remember an old friend of mine telling me once that problems compound with time. You need to nip a problem in the bud as soon as you can. The ultimate is that you realise that the tenant's never going to pay, or maybe it could be a situation, maybe the tenant's doing something that they shouldn't. Maybe there's a lot of antisocial behaviour, maybe, I don't know, they're growing drugs in the spare bedroom, or whatever it is they're doing, and you realise they need to go. How do you actually get them to go? Because again, different agents will have different ways of dealing with that. And they'll have different pet solicitors who they may want to put you to, who will have different scales of charges. Some, in my mind, quite reasonable. Some, in my mind, quite unreasonable and extortionate. And so I'd be wanting to know all about that before I'd commit to an agent. 
So there we are. I'm sure I've forgotten loads of stuff. This is the great thing about having all these questions thrown at me off the cuff. Hope that gives you a few ideas though, Gabriella. Right, here's a very quick question from Victor Ivanovic, which isn't going to take very long to answer because he asks, Airbnb, is it more difficult than it once was? Well, Victor, I'm going to be completely transparent with you. I don't actually do serviced accommodation, which is what I guess your question is coming from. So I honestly can't say. I do remember I once tried to book a property from the other side of it by going on to Airbnb to book my property. And I didn't end up doing that. I ended up on booking.com. But I'm not saying that was because there was anything wrong with Airbnb. I honestly don't know. I've not heard that it is. But there's people within the community who are serviced accommodation experts who will be able to tell you. Alex James Phillips asks, what has your biggest mistake been in property? Oh, wow. How long have you got? I could probably just do a whole podcast on my biggest mistakes in property. The trouble is, if I do that, it's going to put a lot of you off. But the fact that I'm still here talking to you, however many years later, should show you that it all worked out well in the end, which it did. And it still is. So I'm quite happy to share some mistakes with you, as long as you don't hold them against me and as long as it doesn't put you off being in property. I think it's almost a bit like sort of Adnan's question right at the beginning. What's the worst piece of advice that you ever had? I think my biggest mistake was probably listening to the worst piece of advice, if that makes sense. Because I think looking back now, I would probably have been more aggressive and bought more properties early on if I could have. And in fact, I know I've got a question coming up later, which is going to sort of cover this. So I don't want to say too much about this now. But I think my worst mistake probably was not backing myself enough, as Mr. Moore would say. I should have backed myself and I should have gone for it in a bigger way. And I think that was my biggest mistake. And that's one of the reasons why when you come on Masterclass, I will stand at the front and I will berate you and tell you that you've actually got to go out and do this stuff and that you mustn't sit around thinking about it too much. And procrastination, although it might seem reasonable because we all want to make sure that we're going to go out and not make any mistakes, we're going to make sure that we spend our money properly, that we're not going to put ourselves at risk. But you know what? A lot of the time that just creates excuses and it stops us from doing stuff. So I think my biggest mistake was probably just not doing enough. And I'm looking back now, I think I could probably have done more. But I'm going to hold the rest of that because I know I've got another question coming up, looking down the list, where I can probably go into that in a bit more detail. So Alex, I'm getting there. Thank you. So I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll jump straight off to that question which I think comes from Raoul, and he says, what would you do differently if you were starting again now? So pretty much a similar question. And I suppose the gist of this question is, if I knew then what I didn't know then, but which I know now, would I do things differently, if that makes sense? Because obviously when you don't know what you don't know, you, you can't know that you can implement it. And now I know stuff which I didn't know then. I think just to sort of pre-frame this a little bit though, I think, you know, times have changed since I started. I started investing for myself roughly in year 2000. Lots has changed. But in many ways, if you think about it, ironically, not much has changed either, if that makes sense. I'm bringing it sound a bit like Rob Moore, aren't I? I can imagine him saying that. And I think that's why, tangentially, it winds me up a bit when I hear people say things like, well, it was easy for you, it's much harder now, or what worked then doesn't work now. Because I don't think any of that is true. Some things were hard, 
back then when I started, and some things were easy back then. And I think some things are hard now, and some things are easy now. And it may be that they're sort of different things that are easy or hard, but the overall effect, I think, is pretty much the same. And I think when I hear people say that, without being unkind, I think they're just making excuses. Because I'd say, actually, if you think about it, on balance, I'd say that overall it's probably much easier being a property investor today because there are... Why? Well, partly because there's so many more people who are doing it, which I think has made it far more mainstream. And as a result of that, there's loads more resources. Loads more resources than when I first started out. And lots of them are things that we just take for granted, like Rightmove. In fact, actually, if you think about it, the internet. I started property investing before there was an internet. Can you imagine? It's really frightening, isn't it? I still think of myself as being 23, but I'm clearly not. And of course, the other thing which has come with all of that as it's become more mainstream is all the education that's available, like the education here at Progressive. And along with the education, and particularly here at Progressive, there's the community, which is a great support as well. All stuff which wasn't around when I started. Not to mention things like the software, which allows us to do stuff like you can get software which will help you to do pretty much anything, not just find your properties, but manage them, network, all sorts of different softwares coming out all the time. And the one which I particularly love is internet banking, which is mind-blowing, unless you're used to it. For the youngsters listening, you probably don't remember the days when if you wanted to put some money into the bank, you had to go down there with a piece of paper, which was either going to be a note of some kind, and I think there are still notes around, but they're probably not that many. People don't like cash so much nowadays with contactless cards, but you go down either with cash or with a cheque and a book, and you had to pay it into the bank like that, and now we just don't even have to do that kind of stuff. It's just amazing the way that things have moved on, and it's so much easier. Now when I'm doing a property transaction, I can just send the money to the solicitor using internet banking, and it's done. I don't have to make any phone calls. Even 10 years ago, phone banking was amazing, and we all loved that, and now that's really old hat, and picking up the phone's a bit of a faff when you can just click a button on your mouse. So all those things have moved on, and so things, I think, are actually much better now for investors than they were. So with that said, the sort of settings or framework there, what would I do differently? Well, before I even answer that, I just want to say that I don't actually regret anything. I'm very happy with the way things have worked out for me, and so I don't want to make this sound like I've any sort of sour grapes or anything like that. And I know that if my long-suffering wife heard me and she thought I had any sort of regrets, she would hit me because she thinks we've had a pretty good life and I think she's absolutely right. But if I knew then what I, knew, what I know now, then for sure, as I've just said, I'd have done more deals, I'd have done more basic buy-to-lets, and I wouldn't have been quite so cautious, going back to Adnan's question. I would definitely have done more flips early on. I love flips. I think flipping as a strategy is a fantastic strategy. I can't remember which episode it was now. You'll have to look it up, but Tasha and Karen came in to talk about flipping, and I've done a, a podcast since all about flipping. But I think it's a great strategy. Because when you flip, you can make chunky lumps of cash. And every business, whether it's property or whether it's just a conventional business, it doesn't make any difference. But it needs cash flow. Cash flow is everything in business. And if you can get cash flow coming in through flipping in property, 
I think that's a great thing. Portfolio income is great as well, but you probably want to be building both at the same time. So that's something I'd be much more disciplined about doing. I'd be doing many, many more flips, I think. What else would I be doing? Well, I would be looking, I think, exploring HMOs and looking at other strategies much earlier. I'd have probably have got into commercial conversions much earlier if I'd known. But again, it was, a, it was partly a function of the fact that when I first started in property, people weren't really talking about HMOs or commercial conversions. And in fairness to me, let's give myself a break here, but the, the reason why commercial conversions are so exciting at the moment is it's only a few years since the planning law changed, which makes it a lot easier for us anyway, which obviously wasn't the case when I first started. Could it still have been done? Yeah, it could still have been done, but it wouldn't have been quite so easy. And that's why people weren't talking about it. But if I could have, I'd have got into commercial conversions earlier and HMOs earlier. And I'd have probably have done many more option and delayed completion deals during the credit crunch. Again, with hindsight, it's easy because in the, the worst part of the credit crunch, it was hard to imagine that the credit crunch would ever finish. And so it was hard to imagine that, you know, eight, nine, ten years on from the credit crunch, that the property market would have recovered to a point where all of those sweet little option deals and delayed completion deals would have been worth doing. But now that I know what I know now, next time around, next time there is a crash, going back to, was it Melanie's question? When's the next crash going to be? Melanie, I don't know. But when it comes, I'll be ready and I'll be doing a lot more option deals and delayed completions and all that kind of stuff. And then one thing which I would definitely have done, or I would do differently if I was starting again now, is perhaps a better way of putting it, is that I would be looking at how I raise finance and I'd be using a lot more private finance, what we would call in progressive doing JVs, I guess. Again, when I first started, people just weren't talking about it. There weren't that many people doing JVs. There weren't that many people looking to invest in property. It was much more of a niche thing, whereas now it's much more mainstream and many more people are doing it. And so I'd be looking much more closely at doing JVs and raising private finance. And that's really something I only became aware of, to be honest, when I came to Progressive five years ago. So I'd definitely be looking at that. Malcolm Johnson asks, what can you recommend for a total beginner property investor to finally get started in the industry? Well, Malcolm, without knowing anything about your situation, what your experience is, or even how much money you've got to be brutal about it, or who you know is perhaps another way of putting it, because we all know that your network is your net worth. So even if you haven't got your own money, it's who you know is probably going to finance your deals. Without knowing any of that, it's quite hard to give you a specific answer. But in a more general sense, I think you've actually almost answered the question yourself. Because the key thing is for a beginner is you need to get started. Because what I see time and time again is people who've got the best of intentions and maybe even big dreams. But the one thing which lets them down is that they have inertia and they do not get started. And that can be for a number of different reasons. I would guess that behind most of the reasons, though, is going to be fear. Probably fear either of what people may say or fear of making a mistake. We have this rational fear that if we go out and buy a property and it doesn't work out, we're going to lose all of our money. That's very rarely the case, by the way, particularly if you've been educated and you do your due diligence and you know exactly what you're looking for. You're going to eradicate most of the risk when you go out and buy a property. And going back to an earlier answer, just remember Anne Halton's haircut analogy. Even the mistake will grow out in time. So it's getting started. That has got to be the key thing. 
But we can procrastinate and we can dress it all up as being something reasonable. We can say, well, we've got to have the right JV partners in place. We've got to make sure that the finance is in place. We've got to make sure that we've got exactly the right property. One thing which I see time and time again here at Progressive is worrying about our gold mine area, which I fully understand. And I have the great honour and privilege of taking the gold mine session at Masterclass at the moment. But the one thing which I always urge our Masterclass attendees to do is not to get so bogged down in worrying about where they're going to do it that they don't end up doing it at all. I think it's much better to do something somewhere, even if it's not the most perfect area, than to do nothing nowhere because you're still looking for perfection. Because in five years, 10 years, 20 years time, are you really going to care that you didn't quite get the most perfect goldmine area? No, you're not. Especially if you've got 20 properties in your not quite so perfect area and they've all gone up 200%, 400% or you've been collecting the rent and the rent's paid you a passive income which has allowed you to sack your boss. A lot of these things actually, at the end of the day, don't really matter that much. So the one piece of advice I can give you, Malcolm, for a total beginner is to get started. Now, as a practicality, there are certain things that you need to think of. One thing which I would suggest is that you sit down and you work out exactly what it is you're trying to achieve because I come across a lot of beginner investors who don't know what their goals are, they don't know what they're trying to achieve in property. And in my opinion, if you don't know what you're trying to achieve, what are, you're not going to get anywhere, are you? If you don't know where you're going, any road will do, and all those sort of trite things that the self-motivation gurus tell us. But it's absolutely true. You need to know what you're trying to achieve. Because when you know what you're trying to achieve, then you can start thinking about the strategy that's going to be the best strategy to help you to achieve what you want to achieve. And it may not always be the most obvious strategy, by the way. I think a lot of us go into property thinking, I've got to put together a portfolio so I can have passive income from the portfolio. But sometimes, I've just mentioned flips, maybe doing some flips, for example, might get you out of your day job quicker. If your goal is to sack your boss, maybe doing a flip or two will actually get you out of your job quicker because you have some chunky lumps of money coming in. So think about what the best strategy or strategies are. At Progressive, we talk about 70-20-10. So definitely think about your 70-20-10, the three strategies that you want to undertake in that proportion, 70-20-10. Then I'll be thinking about what's the best type of property to fit that strategy, because it's not until you know what type of property you're looking for that you can even begin to think about where to look for it. And so again, one of the big things which I think confuses a lot of people when they're thinking about gold mine areas is they go out looking without actually knowing what they're looking for, which, so it's no surprise they can't find an area because they don't know what their area is meant to look like. But if you know that you want to buy buy-to-lets and they're going to be cheaper properties which are higher yielding, well, there you are. Now we know what we're looking for. Now we can start thinking about the area. If you know that you want to do HMOs, you might be looking for bigger properties that you can convert. Great, now we've got a better idea of the sort of area that we're looking for. If you want to do flips, you're probably going to be selling on to owner-occupiers. So you want slightly better grade property, properties which are going to sell more quickly than the cheaper properties you're going to let out. So again, now we've got a better idea of the area. Add to that, I'd then be thinking about my finance. Am I putting in my own money? Have I got my own savings? Am I relying totally upon JV finance? Am I going to need conventional finance? If I'm going to need conventional finance like buy-to-let loans, can I find a good broker? Well, I'm going to go onto the Progressive Facebook group and ask for recommendations for a broker. So I'd be thinking about that as well. And then I'd also be thinking about my education, not certainly not least or last in this list. I'd be thinking about my education. How do I actually get myself educated so that I, A, know all of the strategies, 
B, know what sort of properties I should be looking for and so I can recognise them when I see them, and C, so I can do all the practical stuff like finding the broker, setting up my business. Do I need to be in a limited company? Should I be buying in my own name? Should I be buying through an LLP? All of these kind of things. I want to get educated around that. So there we are. Malcolm, those will be my first steps. I hope you found that helpful. It's a great question, by the way. But the key thing is, don't get bogged down in the detail. Just get out there and do it. Because if you get out there and do it, as I so often say at Masterclass when I'm doing the introduction, if you're still doing this in 10 years' time, how can you not be successful? Because if you weren't going to be successful, you wouldn't be able to go for 10 years. If you're still going for 10 years, then you're going to be doing well. So just get out there. Do it and resolve to keep going. That would be, I think, the, the key thing there for Malcolm. Interesting question here from Mark Hughes. Mark asks, what are your future plans, Peter, for the podcast and property? Wow. Well, that's very... Ooh. Well, the podcast, that's hard to say. I mean, I will carry on while you want me, unless there's a petition raised asking me to step down. I guess I'll just carry on. Can I carry on forever? Well, probably not. But as long as I can, I'll carry on. I'm quite happy at the moment while Mr. Moore wants me. My plans at the moment are to do pretty much as we've been doing. I like sharing property information, I like sharing experience, I like interviewing great guests. And one thing which I particularly love is interviewing people who are part of the progressive community, whether it's trainers or people who've taken the training and shown how to make it work, because I think that's very inspirational. I've got some great guests coming up the rest of this year and next year as well. So we carry on with more of the same. Second bit of the question though, what are my plans in property for myself, I guess you mean? Very, very good question. Well, at the moment, I'm very excited about doing bigger deals, Mark. And one of the things which I'm looking at is getting into development and commercial conversions in a much bigger way. You'll probably remember I go on endlessly in other episodes about the little plot of land which I've bought, which I'm going to build some houses on. That is an ongoing project. I'm having some frustrations with the planners. Maybe I'll do a podcast about that and warn you all what planning systems really like. Not unexpected, by the way, because I've been in property long enough to know that there's going to be bumps in the road and the planning system is certainly a big bump. But it's not putting me off. I'm also, at the moment, just getting myself ready to exchange contracts on, on another plot of land on which I'm going to build seven flats. That's the plan. The planners, different planner, planning authority, they've said they're very happy with that. And so I hope that we'll be breaking ground on that quite early in the new year, and that will be kicking off. In the meantime, though, I'm also looking at commercial conversions, and I've just exchange contracts on my very first commercial conversion project for a while. I, I have done a few in the past. I've had a bit of a gap. I've realised that it's something which I really enjoy. And a bit like flipping, it's great to have chunky sums of money coming into the bank account. And every business needs cash flow. And as your businesses grow, one thing you need to guard is your cash flow. And so doing the bigger deals, if you get them right, can give you chunky lumps of money which will bring the cash flow in, which will help give your business security and help you to be able to then fund even more bigger deals. So it's a, it's a virtuous circle. So that's certainly what I'm thinking over the next few years, Mark. I suppose a related question to that, which somebody asked me once is, do I have any plans to retire? Now, I don't know whether they were just suggesting that I should, whether it was a subtle hint 
I have no plans to retire, though, from the podcast or from property, and I can't imagine ever doing it, to be honest. I mean, I'd, I'll be honest with you, it's a, it is a little bit of a dilemma because I am a little bit lazy, and so I wouldn't say that I particularly like work, but at the times when I don't do anything, I get a little bit bored as well, so I'm very hard to please. So I need just the right balance, I think, just the right balance of work and free time, and just the right amount of balance of relaxation and stress. And so I will carry on, probably forever, because it's fun. It's fun anyway. I just love doing deals, so I'd love, always want to do that. Jeff Hitchcock asks, I live in the USA. How can I start investing in UK property? Well, again, Jeff, without knowing all of your circumstances, it's hard to give a very precise answer because I don't know whether you're from the USA or whether you're a Brit who's abroad whether you've got money, whether it's money in the States or money in the UK, whether you've got friends in the UK who may be part of your network. All of those are potentially going to change my answer. Also, of course, your understanding of how the UK market works. But I'm going to assume that you're a Brit living abroad and that you have access to friends or friends' money or your own money. And I would say that probably for you, you're going to have to work with somebody. It's going to be very hard to do it from the other side of the Atlantic, unless your job, for example, brings you back to the UK regularly and you can spend a few days every time you come back to head office to then pop out and look at properties. But assuming you can't do that, I'd say that you're probably looking for a JV partner and that JV partner is going to source your properties, do your project management, maybe help you to raise the finance. If it's not a JV partner, then maybe you're going to need the services of a deal package or a property source, somebody who you can trust. You'll need to come and see them, though. I would be very wary about saying, do it all remotely. Even if you're over in the States, I would suggest that at some point you need to come over and meet your JV partner and meet your deal sources, make sure that they're buying the right sort of stuff, make sure that they're the sort of people who you can trust. Otherwise, it could be a bit of a headache. But are there ways of doing it when you're overseas? Well, of course there are, and I quite often get asked this question anyway. I've had people in the Middle East, for example, ask me, how can I invest in the UK if I'm based in the Middle East? It's the same thing. It's going to come down to your network. Who do you know? Who's going to be able to help you? And of course, one of the great things about the progressive community is that it's a ready-made network, and there'll be people within the community who'll be able to help you source properties, people who you can trust. Can you trust everybody in the progressive community? I wish I could say yes, but that's probably being a bit naive. You still need to come over, meet people, make sure that you like them, make sure that they've got shared values, make sure they're finding the right sort of property for you, make sure you can trust them. But certainly the resources are in your network and the fact that you've been putting the question up on Facebook shows you're part of the community. I would use the community, Jeff. Emma Strahl, very interesting question. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Emma. Emma says, I want to start podcasting. What tips can you give me on creating content and interviewing guests? Ooh, creating content. Well, just think about what it is you'd like to hear, I think is one of the best ways of creating a podcast. What is it around your subject? And presumably you've got a subject that you particularly want to podcast about. But what would you want to hear about if you were listening to your own podcast as somebody who's interested in that subject? So a lot of this information which I hope you're uh, appreciating on this podcast is I like to tell people how to do practical stuff. I like to tell people how to start in property. I like to tell them about the real life experiences within property. And that's why I like to bring guests in who quite often times are only a few steps ahead. 
of many of the listeners on the podcast so that they can encourage and inspire and tell them how it really is. And for example, if somebody came in who had a problem, they can share how they got around that problem. One of the episodes which really sort of springs to mind on that was the episode which I did probably around about this time last year with Gary Smith. And Gary was honest enough to share the fact that he really struggled when he first started in property. And there was this one particular incident one day where he just managed to get his mindset back into the right place to be able to do property, and he hasn't looked back since. But I think many people came up to me after that podcast and said how much they appreciated it. Because sometimes we can get so hung up on all the success stories that we don't realise that behind the success there was a real story of a journey, of persistence, of hardship, of things not being that easy, which is how most things in life are, aren't they? Things rarely happen very easily. So I suppose what I'm saying, Emma, is keep it real. Think about what your listeners need to help them. And in terms of interviewing guests, I think one of the things which you need to do as a podcaster is really to keep quiet. Ask your guests a question and then let them give you the answer and listen, listen to what they're saying. I think one of the great skills of a podcaster is to be able to guide the conversation and not, I mean, it's not being too rigid. So you don't, you want to turn up with a list of questions because you need to be prepared, but you don't want to be so rigid that you're only going to ask them a list of questions. And I've heard some podcasters, and I hasten to add, not within this community, but they've obviously had their list of prepared questions and it just sounds awful because they haven't let the conversation flow. Sometimes your guest will tell you something that you weren't expecting and you need to be able to run with that and be able to get the most of that story out of them because it's going to be, if it's of interest to you, it's probably going to be of interest to your listeners. So do your prep, but don't be too rigid and give your guests the freedom to talk and bring out what they think is important and interesting. David Martin, gosh, another question about podcasting. We're going to come back onto property in a minute. What has been the highlight over the past year being the host of the Progressive Podcast? Well, what has been the highlight? Well, so many. I've met some great guests. I've heard some great stories. Uh, I honestly don't even know where to begin with that answer, to be honest. So I probably won't. It's just been a great experience all round. The whole thing has been a bit of a highlight, apart from the days when I've realised I've got to do another episode and <laughs> I'm wondering what to say. No, it's not, not like this at all. David, it's, it's all been good, and I've had some great guests, so I wouldn't want to pick on any particular guest and say they were the highlight, because they've all been pretty good. Here's a question from Rajit, and he says, why did you buy in Newcastle and not Nottingham? And I'm going to cover that question, because I get that question so many times when I'm doing the tradings, particularly when I'm on Masterclass talking about the gold mine area, because... I happen to live just outside Nottingham, but most of my portfolio is in Newcastle or the North East. But I think it'd be useful just to give a little bit of context before I, I answer that question. Because when I first started investing in property in my own right, or at least when I first started trying to invest in property in my own right, I actually lived in Surrey. And my first deal should actually have been a HMO, as we'd call it now, in the south of England. Actually, because this is sort of well before Progressive, I wasn't even sure that an HMO was called a HMO in those days. It was just a big house that had been split into apartments, which the owner was renting out. And this was an absolutely fantastic property. The, the vendor, the owner, was telling me, and I have no reason to disbelieve this, 
that at one time it had actually been occupied as a grand house by a member of royalty. Over time, though, the, the royals had obviously sold the property on and it had been converted into what we now call a HMO and it had 18 apartments. And I knew that if I bought that property, it was going to make me for the rest of my life, really. If I could find a way of structuring it in the right way, I knew that the income from that property was basically going to be my income for life. And so I went into the negotiation for that property full of enthusiasm and full of optimism. But what I didn't know right at the very beginning was that there were particular problems with the seller. And I don't want to go into this too much because you never know, they may even listen to this podcast. But it became evident that the seller wasn't necessarily in the right place in terms of their mindset to be able to sell the property. And that's really all I'm going to say about that. I negotiated this deal for about two years. Two years of my life negotiating this deal. By the way, earlier question was, what's the biggest mistake you've ever made? Well, it's probably not the biggest mistake I ever made, but I should not have been negotiating that deal for two years. I should have walked away probably after about six months because that two years was two years gone. And in the meantime, because I was naive and I was full of enthusiasm and I was full of optimism, I got ahead of myself and I started getting my solicitor to do stuff in preparation for buying the property, even though the seller wasn't yet ready to sell despite what they were telling me. And it ended up costing me about 15 to 20,000 pounds worth of abortive fees. Now, given that this is 25 years ago, and given it was just after I'd been made redundant, and I didn't have any money of my own, really. And by the way, that's a, a sort of question for another time. How do you start with no money of your own? It is possible. It was, it was crushing to lose that money. And then the deal finally fell through. And I'm embarrassed to say that it was actually the vendor who dumped me and I should have dumped the vendor probably a year before that. So I suddenly found myself in this situation where everything I'd been aspiring to hadn't happened. And at that point, I could easily have said, you know what, property doesn't work. I'm just not going to do it. But I knew that it could. Now, at the very same time, and without making this sound like a sob story, but this is the answer to the question, and you've asked it, Rajit, so I'm going to give you the answer. My sister became very ill. She actually had terminal cancer and she was living just outside of Nottingham. And so because I wasn't gainfully employed in a nine to five job, I said to my wife, I think we need to move. I want to be near my sister and support her. My sister at that time, she had three teenage children. We felt that was a, a good thing to do to move closer to her. And that's why I ended up just outside of Nottingham. Now it was about that time, all these things happened at the same time, that I just happened to see an advert which was being run by what we would call a deal packager or a property sourcer. And they were extolling the virtues of high yielding properties in Newcastle. And I was looking at the advert and I was looking at what this deal sourcer was saying that you could do with properties in Newcastle. And I've got to be honest, I didn't really believe it, but I thought, well, it's not going to hurt me to go to Newcastle for a day. So I jumped on the train, went to Newcastle, two hours on the train. I met the deal sourcer. They took me around, they showed me some properties, we went through the figures and I thought, do you know what, this works. I can see that this works. I particularly wanted to do the, what we call a BRR model. And if you're wondering what that is, there's an earlier podcast which talks about BRR, so go and check that out. But it's a way of financing your deals which allows you to get all or most of your money back out of each deal, which means you can then roll your money back in and start building a portfolio. And so I was 
really excited about this. And I thought, right, now I've just wasted two years. I'm just going to get on with it. I'm not going to wait. I'm just going to go and do this. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to start buying and buying and buying. And that's exactly what I did. It worked and it worked there. So why would I not do it there? Now, the reality is, I say that I live just outside Nottingham because I do. It takes about 25 minutes to drive into the city centre and park. But probably for the first couple of years when I moved there, I only went to Nottingham maybe two or three times because there was nothing particularly for me to do to go there. I think I'm not even sure that Costa was open. So why would I go to Nottingham apart from to do my occasional Christmas shopping? So I didn't, the point I'm making is I didn't really know Nottingham. I didn't really know Newcastle, but I didn't really know Nottingham either. And so that's why there wasn't a, really a binary choice. Sometimes people say, well, why did you choose Newcastle over Nottingham? Well, I didn't really, because I didn't really know anything about Nottingham, so I couldn't make any choices one way or the other. Since then, of course, I have got to know Nottingham quite well. And ironically, I probably still know Newcastle slightly better than Nottingham, even though I live 150 miles away. But I'm invested in Newcastle, aren't I? Literally, so, it's, so it makes sense for me to know Newcastle and to know what's going on in Newcastle. But do I do things in Nottingham? Yes, I do. I've done flips in Nottingham and the bits of land which I've referred to are near Nottingham. So I, I'm not saying I wouldn't do it in Nottingham, but it just so happened that because of history, because of fate, if you like, because of the way life just worked out, I just ended up doing it in Newcastle and the figures worked. And rather than messing around trying to find the perfect area, the perfect goldmine area, I found a goldmine area which was good enough, it worked for me, and I've been very happy and I actually found it, because that's where the bulk of my portfolio is. So Rajit, that's why I buy Newcastle and not Nottingham. So there we are. What a great load of questions, or what a load of great questions, depending on how you want to put it. They were fantastic questions. And I love doing that. Maybe we'll do a follow-up again in the new year and see if we can answer some more questions, because I've still actually got a load up my sleeve which we could uh, answer. But until then... I've been Peter Jones. If you want to know more about me, you can come over to my website, thepropertyteacher.co.uk. Or, until next week, I'll be back with the Progressive Property Podcast. Until then, here's to successful property investing. Music